Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's DC. N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com slash tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Well, another week and another Wednesday have gone past, and that means new DC Comics have hit the shelves. And more importantly, they've refilled my interdimensional spinner rack. And that means I get to choose five of my favorite books from the books released this week from DC Comics and share them with you. All part of the great experience here at the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and it's time to take a look at my picks for the top five books from DC Comics, this week and every week. And just a little something that comes with the territory. Whenever you're traveling to a place in the space-time void, such as the one where the spinner rack exists, it's easy to do it on your own, thinking you can take care of everything, but sometimes you need a little help. Which is why, in the background, if you hear the snarbling and grunting snorting of my traveling companions, Bruno the French Bulldog and Fiji the Pipple, don't mind their interest and excitement. They're just making sure that we're all having a great experience visiting the Spinner Rack. For book number one, I'm going to start things off with Justice League Dark number 10. Let's get into what's happening. Well, Wonder Woman and her team of, well, politely mystical misfits are on their last legs against Dr. Fate and a group of acolytes known as the Lords of Order. Or, more importantly, Lords of Order who, like Naboo, actually made a choice to pursue and prevent the overwhelming force of chaos that comes with magic. The magical community is surrounding them, and Justice League Dark is pretty much searching everywhere for one chance to stop Dr. Fate and the other kind, and to save magic. Their choice, though, is Mordru, Lord of Chaos. So why I picked him? Well, it starts with the fact that I was lucky enough to review the Justice League Dark trade paperback, which collected issues 1 through 7. And one, I got ringing endorsement from uh, my good friend over at Dark Knight News and featured regular guest and host on the DC Comics News podcast, Steve J. Ray. Steve J. Ray was really great at pointing out some elements that I could look forward to when reading this collection and later reviewing it. And he was right. I loved everything about the... uh, The concept and the premise and the promise of magic. And it's something that I wrote about in my review for DC Comics News. 
and invite you to take a look at that to potentially get an introduction to exactly everything that's happening. But hopefully that what's happening got you started. So coming back in now on issue number 10, it was a great opportunity to pick back up with this really enjoyable cast of characters that I haven't seen since uh, the trade paperback. And that includes guys like Detective Chimp, Manbat, and Zatanna, or Zatanna, to uncover the mystery of the other kind. So let's jump into the favorite parts. One, in story, or at least one of a few in the story, is the concept here of Kirk, the uh, mad scientist who's been the closest to revealing the greater danger that no one else seems to be able to see. And the madness that is created by the pursuit of his discovery has forced the team previously to lock him away, and that led him to, well, magic and the unlocking of a prisoner, which moves us really easily into my favorites on the story part number two. And that is that Kent and Naboo have always had a complicated history. And this issue provides the moment and history when Naboo decided to part ways with Kent, take control of their combined being as Dr. Fate, and do a little forward thinking, and consider a preemptive strike against the dangers of the magic that is wielded on Earth and the chaos that comes with it. For favorite story part number three, I really love the visit to Cersei by Zatanna and Wonder Woman, which reveals that Zatara, her father, has been planning for the other kind since before his death and imprisonment in a hellish existence, and that Constantine knew his role would lead to what appeared to be his death. Zatanna does not take this well, and her magical reaction actually releases another kind, which is something we'll return to in a bit. And I think the one thing that I enjoy just sort of following through this thread is this constant feeling from Bobo that Manbat has somehow handled magic better than he, the detective chimp who was left with the sword of the Nightmaster and to be the defender of that realm. And if you get a chance to read the uh, first seven issues, you'll get an idea of just how well he didn't do at that job. On the art side, well, the weirdly fun variant cover of a distorted team sort of hunched over this purple creature with these like giant eyeballs sort of looking at them and them looking back and Detective Chimp has this very interesting shape to his his face and jawline that reminds me of like old uh, covers of the uh, title Max, M-A-X-X, if you remember that. And just also this sort of hulking presence of the Swamp Thing, Wonder Woman, and even a little bit from... Uh, Zatanna. Part two on the art is the Lords of Order, who are this kind of cool, fun combination of Dr. Fate, Naboo variants, um, each one carrying one of the armaments that make up um, a source of power or a relic, and that by being used are able to take on these different aspects of order. For example, Sister Symmetry. I really enjoyed it, and I encourage you to read over the cast of characters and sort of take in this this new group 
and the idea that they were actually practitioners, believers, who gave up their role in humanity to become these lords of order. And I believe there's more to their story than what's been revealed so far, and that that further revelation could really lead to some interesting concepts about who exactly is in charge of order and chaos. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some parts that I didn't love. On my least favorite side, story-wise, when Zatanna gets emotional after learning the truth about her father and Constantine, she's able to take out the other kind that manifests with a very powerful dose of magic. And I know that her belief in issues 1 through 7 was that she couldn't use magic, well, simply because she was afraid that it was her actions that were creating um, and the actions of others who were using magic opportunities for the other kind to come over. And yet, her ability to destroy this other kind creature with such an effective blow maybe just ask, okay, where has this been? I understand why you're, you know, adhering to your fears about magic. And yet, at the same time, I'm having a bit of a problem with it because, well, it it feels like the revelation is going to be that she should have been using her magic all along, that that's actually the true strength. And that's what they're going to have to rely on in order to defeat the other kind. On the art side, my only real complaint is that Cersei's uh, attire while talking with Wonder Woman and Zatanna is like this businesswoman archaeologist pantsuit with a coat and vest thing. And she looks a bit silly. You know, I mean, it's just kind of foolish or whatever your word is when you see it, you'll have... Uh, an idea to think about what I'm saying, but it's though she wants to appear very controlled and businesslike. But then when we see the flashbacks of her talking with Zatara and Constantine, she's back to her seductive, slinky clothing and sheer drape, which feels more like the Cersei that we've been exposed to. It's almost like she was trying to put on the facade in front of the ladies, even though she knows that what usually works is the seductive wiles. In fact, it was almost as though it was supposed to be her attempt to speak to them on their level by appearing so formal and businesslike. And I understood the desire, attempt, but by comparison, perhaps another choice might have more effectively accomplished it. Unless the goal was to make her appear foolish in her attempt to appear as an equal or on the same par as uh, Zatanna and Wonder Woman, or also of a, a woman of, of equal measure and deserving their respect. But still, perhaps, in my opinion, there could have been a better way to go about it, because this one felt forced, unnatural, and weirdly enough made me actually look forward to the flashback that showed her back to her, you know, old ways. My final score for this one, very solid four, great read, a lot of fun, really enjoyed the art. Almost a 4.5, except there was parts that, as I described, sort of got in the way for me. And that was a little bit difficult and sort of pulled me back at times. And I don't want to be pulled out of a story. I just want to be pulled in. Now, that was my score. Your score is something that I'm still waiting to hear about. Of course, I'm recording right now, so it's not like you can just shout out to me. But when you do hear it, I'll be waiting to hear from you to see what your score was. 
Now for book number two, I went ahead and picked up flash number 69. Jumping right into the what's happening, well, the trickster is trying to prove that he's the greatest villain. And there's a riot in Central City, and all forms of madness are breaking forth. Now, the trickster has pulled out all of his stops in this assault on Flash's hometown, and at the end of last issue, had left Flash with an illusion that his legs had been cut off, and that there was simply, you know, no way out. Now, why I picked it comes down to the fact that I've loved the Flash character since my first introductions to him, since getting my first Flash comic book number 49 back in the early 90s, and watching the TV show and following his exploits from that time till now. And it's one of the main reasons why I love the Flash the way I do, and for all of the characteristics that I've seen him embody and portray. So I kind of hold it to a higher standard. And I don't always check in because I know that it can't always be on top of its game because we can't all be every time. And then in the process, because he's been around for so long, sometimes it can be a challenge for new writers, new storytellers, new stories and directions with the character. But this time I knew that there would be a follow-up to the previous book's ending and thought it would be a great opportunity to see how well that works. And I thought this did a really nice job of not only changing the viewpoint of characters regarding a villain who is somewhat laughable, but also offering up the chance to prepare for the next chapter in the story of the flash and it's one that i'm looking forward to sharing as well but let's move into the favorite parts on story because there's a great moment when flash is freaking out and needs commander cold to help him stop believing the illusion that his legs have been taken an illusion that is a product of the sage force and something that the trickster has used to convince him that there's no way he'll be able to run without his legs because he doesn't have his legs it's a really great moment when Commander Cold has to open up about what his emotional range has been since he's been stuck in this past timeline, pulled from the future, and at the, in his mind, fault of the Flash. And through that, this relationship that they had that's been very distant after being something where they were able to actually work well together is potentially on the repair, and it's a nice moment to watch them work through this and how working through it leads to the Flash breaking past the illusion and figuring out that he still has a chance to stop the trickster. Another favorite part on this story, and spoiler, Flash does find a way to beat the trickster without going into too much detail. I'll let you know that much. And while he is able to prevent his hold, the trickster does, again, spoiler, get away. In doing so, he actually creates this sort of mythos that he might be the greatest villain or thief in Central City, perhaps even the greatest rogue, which could lead to an interesting storyline as well down the line. But once the trickster has disappeared, apparently with all of the loot he's stolen, and in a destruction of the local prison and all of the secrets hidden within, Barry returns to his lab to find a mysterious figure cloaked in maybe green, it's hard to tell because there's all shadow, 
who's looking around the lab with a sense of recognition or understanding and asks if this is where the accident occurred, but asks in a way of saying, like, you know, this is where it happened, didn't it? And when the Flash realizes that this is a potential danger and prepares to give his warning, he's interrupted by a warning that there's something he forgot, something he must remember. And in order to do that, as the last panels reveal, we have to go back into his childhood and back to his beginning, which means that there's going to be a first-year storyline coming up. And this is something I'm really intrigued by. Because I remember the first time that I came across one of these year one stories. And it was one written by Mark Wade, and it was one that picked up at a point where when I was reading The Flash, I didn't think there was a need for a year one. I also didn't love the transition of a new artist and the way it made, you know, this sort of boy that I'd known through my versions of the comics up to that point seem kind of different, a little bit smudgy, a little less attractive, a little less desirable. But also, it's something that, through reading, became one of my favorite stories because of the ways it pointed to the struggles that the character I was reading then, Wally, was having and his difficulties as a child and what that had meant to his sort of breaking past this inability to use his speed anymore. And then how that in turn led to other stories in his adult life. Doing the same thing with Barry now is something that has a new meaning for me because I saw how well it was done with Wally so long ago by Mark Wade. And it's one that now, having seen how well it's done, always offers me a sort of brighter possibility when considering a year-run storyline because I've seen what its potential can reach and also I'm aware that it's got even more potential beyond that. With that in mind, I'm looking forward to this sort of next story arc that we'll be picking up. On my favorite parts regarding art, page six with the flash on his knees and his legs gone the bandages, and just that sheer look of shock and horror and dismay. It, it was a really, just a really great scene that, that sort of stuck with me, and I could imagine as a younger reader being just a bit like, oh my goodness, how did they do this to my favorite character? What's going to happen next? How will he get out? But as an older me, at the end of last issue, all I could think was, oh, this will be fun to watch him get out of, because he's the Flash, and he always gets out. Now, despite all that praise, there were a few least favorite parts. On the story side, the sort of exultation by the villains when they're getting the chance to simply just loot Central City like nobody's business, as the old phrase goes, they are a bit too much in their praise of Jesse as being like the the big guy, the the greatest supervillain ever, the the one who actually beat the Flash and took down Central City. And it didn't, I don't know. I mean, I get the idea, but I've seen it so many times where a character is getting their sort of run and momentum and they're running the tables and they're the one who just keeps coming up roses or smelling like them. 
And this concept that is attempted where characters are now suddenly thinking that this character who was maybe not that all that impressive or lower ranked is now suddenly one of the best or the greatest. Like they get their comeuppance or they get their opportunity to shine. And I appreciate the desire to try and reinforce that. But this felt... Well, I liked it. But for some reason I have this sense of caution when it comes to these moments. And in this one that what was leading me while I was reading through it instead of just diving right in or feeling like, hey, yeah, Trickster's one of the greatest villains who ever lived. I also understand with the villain mentality that they're often leashing out and striking out towards others because they are seeking the approval of someone who once disapproved of them. But the scene where Jesse finally gets the approval of his parents and then maliciously throws him off of a building felt really over the top. On the least favorite side for the art was pages 14 through 16. Flash is wearing this gear that's been rigged up as part of the solution to break the powerful hold that the trickster has had over the people of Central City. And it's a bit clunky and seems a little excessive because it's sort of strapped all over his body. And of course the idea is he has to do this you know, with each person individually, and of course it's a task only the Flash can complete. And this part just felt like slapped together is probably the best word I could use. It felt very improvisational, and while I appreciate that that's what's going to happen sometimes when you're creating a solution to a problem, it it felt, because of its clunkiness, either forced or hard to digest. And that was something that was a little disappointing because I was already feeling this sort of withdrawal at this point after seeing the way the villains had sort of overreacted and watching Jesse sort of have his moment with his parents. Despite some of those detractors, it was still really easy for me to give this one a four. Now, of course, just because your score is a mystery right now doesn't mean it has to stay that way. The best mysteries are the ones that are solved just like the best discoveries are the ones we reach. If you've got a score you want to share, well, I'm telling you right now, that's something I and the rest of us here just can't wait to hear. For next book, I chose Batman Beyond, number 31. Now what's happening? Well, there's been a series of high-tech heists and a new villain known as Split preying on Neo-Gotham. Of course, only Batman is able to stop them, but Terry McGinnis doesn't really want to get right into this after a really destructive battle with the Joker. And things are more difficult with the way that Bruce Wayne has been acting since his return from a visit to Arkham Asylum. Why I picked him? Batman Beyond is something I never really watched with regularity on television, but I keep my ears open, and quite often I hear good things about the storytelling that they are crafting. And how this is one of those great moments when a character on television moved into comic books and did so with a great deal of ease because of all of the great things that have been done with this character so far. I thought that part one of this new story arc would be a good time to check in and observe the process of setting up this storyline for the next few issues, and also to enjoy the character without the impending threat of such a powerful nemesis like the Joker, whose storyline just wrapped up.
For my favorite parts, on the story side, Bruce is not Bruce, and the real Bruce is somehow locked in Arkham, and doesn't really know who he is, but he is all bandaged up, so we can't quite see his face, even though, in my thoughts, it has to be Bruce, because the Bruce around Terry doesn't seem to be willing to give any advice, is really hitting the sauce early, and seems a bit aloof and uncaring. I think this is going to create some great tension and developments, and I'm curious to see how long this can be extended. I'm reminded, of course, of the uh, experience on the Marvelous Competition side of comic books where there was a long storyline of the character Spider-Man and his nemesis Doc Ock switching places and the length to which that storyline took both characters and the way audiences really enjoyed it. I don't see it going that far with Batman Beyond, Terry McGinnis, and Bruce Wayne, but the lengths that it will go can often create some really nice tensions or for a bit of humor, irony, or some really painful tragedy. Where we go next could be really interesting and should be exciting. For my favorite art parts, there's a really nice splash page on page 10 featuring Bruce and Terry standing back-to-back with Terry's younger brother at the comms, and uh, it's got a nice tone, and I like the way that the lines and the shadows really make it pop. Also on 13, nice splash page of future Batman Terry, wings wide, soaring across the sky, and clearly, just while in his element and doing his job, looking graceful and like that otherworldly presence that's always been associated with Batman. It's a nice touch here, and I think it's done well. Of course, even the best have moments when they struggle. On my least favorite parts for story, I wanted to like the villain split. This concept of two people who can merge as one and actually have to because being apart for too long creates some sort of problem. But it felt like more of a distraction than anything, given that the larger story is something that is going to affect the relationship of Terry and Bruce, and everyone related to the Bat family, for as long as it continues and for the damage that it causes. And in this way, Split, while interesting and clearly knocking around Batman in their first face-off, also seemed to not be very complicated and someone who, I guess, if Batman didn't seem so distracted, then perhaps he could have overcome him. Or maybe it's supposed to be a reflection of the fact that Terry is still kind of recovering from his experience with the Joker. And yet, this character just, for me, in many ways, fell flat. And I wanted to like the presentation and all the things that went with it, but I couldn't get past what I felt were these sort of clunky parts that kept pulling me out of the story and making me ask questions I didn't want to ask because I just wanted to keep reading. On the art side, given my experience with Batman Beyond uh, and having it been so limited, there wasn't much that I felt really pulled away in the art side. And In fact, overall, based on the tone that was set at the beginning, I felt it was very strong all the way through. And I struggled to find any weak points. However, I'm always open to second pair of eyes. Because just like a great editor, they're always going to see the things I can't see. So if you spot something on the art side that you say, no, 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 you missed something, Seth. Well, please, reach out. Go ahead and give a shout at 
DC Comics News or hashtag us or whatever and say, Seth, you missed something. Take a look at the page that I'm talking about and then let's talk about art because that's a conversation I'd like to have and I'd like to know if I really did miss something because right now I can't see that I did and that's why I gave Batman Beyond a score of a solid four. I think I'm going to enjoy reading the rest of this arc as it continues, and I'm curious if I'm going to like it so much to include this book on the spinner rack again in the future. Because as you'll see, there are a few books which seem to make it back on the list again and again. Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's D-C-N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that, uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. And taking the spot for slot number four on the spinner rack is going to be Freedom Fighters number five. Now, what's been happening? Uncle Sam is the living embodiment of the American spirit. And he's pretty much been the only figure missing from the completion of the Freedom Fighters. Again, this is a second iteration of the freedom fighters and in this issue we get to learn more about that but the arrival of sam has galvanized the current freedom fighters to seek him out and come to his aid because while uncle sam is back he's clearly not at 100 percent, and it's a challenge because he's so gung-ho and the response to his appearance and his arrival is so immediate that it's not like he really has any time to, you know, ease into things. And because of who he is, he's just immediately driven to stop whatever evil they're doing right in front of him. And in doing so, well, we get some really fun parts that I'm going to cover in a minute from my favorites. Um, essentially, though, the Freedom Fighters have been making great strides against the Razzis. And it's really frustrating their regime that these small groups are able to provide resistance and even hope. And that leads to the possibility of bringing back the most powerful weapon that the Razzis were able to use to first take down the Freedom Fighters so long ago. Why I picked it? Well, the first is personal. I have always been drawn to the never-ending struggle of the Freedom Fighters. Earth-X always felt like that place where it was just harder. You know, it's funny, I remember I used to love these shows about characters who were time-traveling or cast about in some other unexpected sea of change and chaos, and how the goal was always to come home. And that's something that uh, I remember watching a friend of mine get sucked into Quantum Leap or other sci-fi shows that touched upon that concept. And I could understand why that was such a compelling idea. And yet, at the same time, 
I remember that my father had no interest in that. In fact, if there was one thing that really made him upset about television shows, it was when they put characters in a situation in which they're always trying to get home, and actually every episode is just about them never making it. Because for him, they never get any resolution, and as a viewer or partaker in the story, he felt he never got a chance to have any resolution because of that. And that always uh, makes me smile when I think about it, because when it comes back to the concept of Earth-X, it's this always never-ending again, but this always and constant threat and this overwhelming force that they're working against that when you look at it against that scale you have to just wonder how is how is it even possible if essentially it feels like the the Reich has taken over or the Ratsis in this situation have taken over the entire world or at least from the viewpoint of everyone in America that's how it looks and I think also I've always been sort of curious about what the freedom fighters were before I first saw them because my first interaction with them was actually as characters in Crisis on Infinite Earths in which I got to see so many different characters that I'd never really read about um whether it was characters from Gemworld and Amethyst or whether it was characters from Warlord or uh, actually one of my first exposures to the Doom Patrol, or the concept that Hawk and Dove had actually been brothers. And Crisis on Infinite Earths is really great that it has that ability to be one of those, in my opinion, the the first big world-ending events in which so many heroes are gathered together. And for someone who was still really new to comic books and had stumbled upon a torn-up, beat-down, I think it only cost me 50 cents copy of Crisis on Infinite Earth number 12 from my local comic book store. I became aware of these characters. And one that stuck with me was the mournful and heroic loss of the human bomb. And how he used every ounce of his power to try and fight off the shadow demons that were attacking. And how much it cost him. And that That idea stayed with me the more I came across other characters who had been part of the Freedom Fighters. And often I did so in different iterations because when there wasn't a Freedom Fighters book and after the changes of Crisis on Infinite Earths, so many of these characters now became part of this one Earth theory. And I learned about Condor, Phantom Lady, Dollman, and Uncle Sam. And it makes it really easy for me to move from that right into my favorite parts because story for me on this one comes right with the introduction of Uncle Sam who made his sort of triumphant appearance last issue in Freedom Fighters number four. And in this one he is right in the thick of it. On the first couple of pages we get to see so many Ratsies laid out Sam rolling up his sleeves, thumping away. And what I like from this moment is that we then get to go into his head and we get to experience sort of an idea uh, that he frames around the spirit of 76 and uses it to touch on different ideas about how it was never just for one group or ever to exclude 
on creed or race or color or culture and how the spirit of 76 was what was the foundation for the original freedom fighters now because of this the spirit of 76 was such a resilient force until it met the great challenge of the razi's greatest weapon and that would be overman a twisted version of the superman that we have known on many other versions of earth this version overman crushes the freedom fighters and in sam's eyes uh it was also due to the fact that the fighters had had so much success that they had become complacent and it led to their downfall and it actually led to the disappearance of uncle sam and it's only now as a reformed new generation of freedom fighters is striking back and the spirit of 76 is being rejuvenated that he's able to arrive on the scene and it's why he's not quite at 100 percent because the spirit of 76 as he calls it the american spirit the spirit of the country that is part of his core strength its belief is part of what defines and gives him his power is still recovering from all of the loss that it experienced and from the time that it spent being kind of broken and weakened and to such a degree that it's only now that he's able to make this appearance and it's interesting to watch him question why it is that he's so tired when he's fighting and yet it's not surprising given that he hasn't been doing this for a while he doesn't have the stamina just like if you don't run for five years and you start and run 10 miles you're going to be tired really fast and for sam he doesn't have as much to draw on because the american spirit the spirit of 76 the source of his power is still regaining its strength and until it's strong enough there's going to be limits which is why we get to see uh some great moments when the freedom fighters come to his aid and it gives me a chance to move right into uh, one of my favorite parts about the art side of this issue and that's a big splash page of sam on page three ratsy strewn all around him telling his story about the spirit of 76 and then in the following pages exhausted <laughs> at one point having pulled out a light pole to strike down his enemies he's clearly uh had a great burst of excitement and now he needs some help which leads to my next favorite art moment from this book which is the arrival of the blue tracer which is the uh it's the team jet for better or lack of a better word for the freedom fighters and the undercarriage is this really cool uh pattern and imagery of just kind of american military you know flags as they would be displayed on planes with the lights coming around because oftentimes there's this sort of dark and heavy shadowing that's going on in the uh in the shading and the tone of the book and so colors like reds and blues feel kind of muted or distorted and that color and pattern displays really nicely on the bottom of the blue tracer as it's approaching to support sam and another great moment is the sequence of events on the uh, art side of uh, this issue with human bomb trying to rush in to help uncle sam and relying on phantom lady's ability to teleport him 
right in front of a war wheel, which is this giant, massive weapon that the Razzis used in their uh, eventual conquest of the United States, and it's one of their biggest uh, strengths when it comes to fighting whatever forces try and rise up against them. And this teleportation scene has this great moment of like very close focus, clear shot of the human bomb while all the action around him is this blurred distortion. And then he drops down with this great shot on page 15 and with one punch takes out the war wheel. And the colors around that with the war wheel kind of displaying this like reddish scarlet almost, but interestingly shaded like it's a siren. So it has this uh, very interesting light pattern that also creates a tone and hue over both uh, the human bomb and Uncle Sam. As it first arrives for Uncle Sam and later when human bomb is taking it out with this punch. Really nice just mix of tone, color, and great, just great art detail. And for a spoiler... Feel free to jump ahead, 15, 20 seconds for this one. On the final page, really nice shot as we've moved through into the lower portions of the Doomsday Bunker, and we see standing in its sort of recesses, Overman. Steam rising around, looking just huge, scary, ominous. And it's a really great way to end the issue and a really final strong art point to wrap up Freedom Fighters number five. Hands down, I have no problem uh, pointing to all of those great moments. And when it comes to my least favorite parts, it makes it easy because on the story side, I have no complaints. (laughs) I liked everything about it. I looked for weaknesses and I don't have any. And as far as the art, the only thing that really sort of threw me a bit because of the distortion and my unfamiliarity with how it relates to the character is when Hitler's son, who's now his successor and public face of the Razzis, is informed about how the appearance of Uncle Sam means that he has to go into his bunker and his anger twists his face until he looks like a vampire. But then, only a few panels later, he's so much more sullen, like a child. And I almost felt it was a little over the top. And as far as I was concerned, perhaps the weakest moment of all in the art side. And that's as weak as it got. So, surprise, surprise. My score for this one is going to be a number five. Your score doesn't have to stay a secret. And I can't wait for you to share it with me and us with a quick tag for DC Comics News. Your choice at hash. You choose. No pressure. Which gives me the chance to wrap things up with Wonder Woman number 69 for my fifth and final book on the spinner rack this week. Now let's get to what's happening. Diana made a promise to Aphrodite. And... She is doing everything that she says she can, believes she can, to find Aphrodite's son, Atlantiades, who is lost somewhere on Earth. And they're on his... Until they discover a town driven by lust. More on that in a moment. Now, why I picked it? 
Simply put, as I was reading through it, it seemed like such an obvious choice simply because of the level of sheer, in my mind, madness in both the story and the art. I understand everything that's going on. I have not been reading all the issues leading up to it, and I really only started catching up around issue number 67, and even then, really don't have a full grasp on all the events that led to where we are now. But dropping in the middle of it, I enjoyed every part that I was presented with, which makes it so easy to move right into my favorite parts. Starting on the story side, creepy little cherubs that attack you until you submit to love and stop fighting them. And it really is this great concept, and it's sort of presented in an interesting way when Diana's line that love is dangerous because it is implacable is so perfect that I really just I encourage you to enjoy every aspect of the story, all of the characters, and consider, if you do, to trace back all the way to the beginning of when this tale began and what led Diana to this moment that she is now working with Aphrodite and arriving at this town. And it's so easy to move from that into my favorite art side, which is a host of snarling cherubs filling the sky like vultures. So much like this story, it's easy to go into bit-by-bit, point-by-point detail and to try so hard to tell you everything that's going on. And with the art, it would be really easy to say, oh, well, let's, you know, break down this one panel for 15 minutes because it's possible (laughs) and talk about all of the amazing things that really make this such uh, a great issue. But let me present you with what is a really strong image and should be a really compelling reason to pick it up. And that is this host of snarling cherubs filling the sky And at first, appearing as described by one of the group in Wonder Woman's party as being so cute. And yet, when Wonder Woman warns, wait, wait until they get closer, then you get this opportunity to see just how (laughs) evil and twisted and violent and threatening, malicious even, these cherubs' faces can twist when they realize that everyone in town is making out and lusting over each other to a degree that Wonder Woman actually has to step in and prevent a man and woman who are husband and wife from coming to blows when it's revealed that he's been cheating on her and she's caught him only to tell him that she's leaving him for a woman that she's fallen for and his response is to attack with violence. This is a disruption when Wonder Woman steps in to prevent it and the recognition by the cherubs is that her and her group are interlopers and they don't belong and they are not welcome and they are seen as an outside threat, much like uh, those blood cells they're always talking about, you know, the ones that come in and help fight back disease, infection, or invasion to the human body. This is their environment, and anything that's not working the way they want it to is a danger and a threat. And as they begin to attack, it's pointed out to them that, by others, 
they'll keep attacking until you conform to what they're essentially asking by giving in and submitting to the more lustful or desirous sides of yourself, even the parts that are just driven more by passion and love. Now, these are just one parts, but I'd also like to point out that they do represent where I feel for all the joy and all the madness and all the fun and excitement that there can be uh, some weaker moments that can sort of balance us out. And on the least favorite part side, actually, later in the story, Aphrodite demonstrates that she can command the cherubs to stop attacking. But then her son can regain control just a few pages later, and she actually mentions that her control has been usurped. And if this is true, one, why did they listen to Aphrodite when they did, and how is this not being portrayed as a conflict, either for them or her, or later, when it's finally introduced, her son? And while I felt it was the biggest challenge for me, I'd also be just as curious to hear where your sort of differences lay when you were and are reading this story, and where in all the midst of the sort of chaos and madness you find yourself drawing a line and saying, no, no, this is where I stop and this is where I have an issue with. Because I think it's interesting when our perceptions allow us to enjoy certain parts of... uh, those elements that are beyond what we commonly refer to as our reality and to what degree we'll either allow, accept, or believe them to stray from the sort of what we understand and currently know or believe to be true. And then when we compare notes, just how different or far apart those lines just might lie. And then to wrap things up on the least favorite part when it comes to art, As they're getting closer to the source of the trouble and the one who's actually usurped control from Aphrodite of the cherubs, the cherubs sort of create this floating mask um, with their bodies in the shape of this mask as a warning or threat or mouthpiece. And I got the idea, and yet at the same time as I looked at it, it sort of felt like the the scene from The Wizard of Oz where there's the big talking head and you go behind it. And that, interestingly enough, there was a bit of a distraction. That there was this, you know, there was actually just a moment where it pulled me out more than anything from the story and made me say, why are you doing that? If clearly Aphrodite's been able to have enough of an influence that they've been able to not be challenged and threatened by the uh, cherubs when she does so. And how is it that the heroes, including Wonder Woman, who's leading them, or her band, whether or not you want to call them all heroes or not, but this group, this party she's leading, pushes on, it seems like it's just a, a nice visual and a nice distraction, but like the Wizard of Oz moment, it it sort of makes... Anyone who's paying attention or anyone who feels like a facade is just something you move past to go, well, who thought that would work? Um, It also reminds me of a a Family Guy episode where they reference Superman 2 and the idea of his big Superman S-shield that he pulls off his chest and throws out to the enemies. 
And of course, it's, you know, Zod and uh, the other two members of his party. And when this weapon is pulled out, it seems like more of a delay tactic or a nuisance, <laughs> which is how it's described in the TV show, uh, Family Guy. And yet here, this mask feels like that same sort of idea of a, a nuisance, essentially. For all those reasons, it's still uh, so much fun to enjoy this issue. And actually, now that I've finished talking about it with you, I want to go back, read again, see what I missed, so that when we do get thoughts, comments, opinions from you about this one, I'll have had a chance to look it all over again, either potentially change my mind on things, reinforce my original beliefs, or notice something new. And isn't that the best part of looking through a comic book you really enjoy and finding new elements to sink into and reflect on or share with others? And for all those small parts that I listed for the least favorites, this one actually came out to a solid 4.5 for me. I would have loved to have given it a 5, and I really think uh, reading it through, I might question my decision later. And that's why I'm going to be curious to hear what your score is, because knowing that this is something that I might rate even higher on further review and continued rereadings, who knows how similar our scores might be when you share it with me. And with that, we have come to the end of this week's edition of Spinner Rack. This has been the Spinner Rack number six. I've been your host, Seth Singleton, going through the top five books from DC Comics this week and having a lot of fun doing it with you. As always, remember that DC Comics News is available on all the major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So please, head over and subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Of course, when you're mentioning your scores and sharing on social media, look for us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube at DC Comics News. And use it whenever you let us know your thoughts, your scores, your opinions, or anything else you want to share with us about DC Comics, DC Comics News, and of course, for my own personal interest, the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. And a brief reminder that never gets old, but always stays fond each time I repeat it. Always read more comics.